privilege today of introducing Scott Hagen. He's the seventh president of North Central University. He began this role in June of 2017 following a highly successful career as a church planter and pastor. He's the author of six books and more than 60 articles on leadership, influence, and biblical application. Hagen is currently completing his PhD in leadership studies at Gonzaga University and lives in Minneapolis with his wife, Karen. They have four married children and nine grandchildren. Please join me this morning in welcoming to our stage, Scott Hagen. Uh, we're going to be in a few minutes in the book of Philemon. I'm giving you a head start to find it in the Bible. It's toward the back, a uh, little tiny one page in the Bible called Philemon. So greatly appreciate the invite. Uh, love my new assignment here in Minneapolis. Moved here from California. Uh, had lived in Michigan, but then lived in California the last 14 years. And my daughter went to North Central. That's how I found the college and fell in love with the college. And we got uh, lots of students that come from Southwest uh, to the university and and uh, we're downtown. There's a great booth out there, a little kiosk with all the information about all the phenomenal majors and all of the leadership opportunities in downtown Minneapolis, second to none. So great to see everybody here. Okay, so real quick, you guys are pretty quiet, uh, like extraordinarily quiet. Uh, can you say, I'm quiet? Okay, pretty good, pretty good. I want to show you a picture real quick of my beautiful bride. So this is my wife, Karen. It's my favorite picture of her, uh, circa 1966. Um, she had the little, what well, they call that a page boy haircut. Um, she's 57 now, so she was probably three and a half, four right there. Uh, I love this picture because she had a little matching outfit going on, the little purse, the little cool green thing, pure 60s right there, the little hair barrette, the little matching purse with the green dot, but it's the gleam in her eye. Now dudes, I'm gonna tell you straight up, there's very few things on this earth that can make a girl look like that, to make a girl's eyes light up like that. I think even at this age that the Lord was showing Karen her future. I think she saw something about the future that made her look the way that she looks. I think this is what God was showing Karen. Next picture, if you will. So I think this is the vision that she had. <laughs> Why would you do that? Why would you feel the necessity to mock your guests today? How do you even know that that's me? So... No, that's me about 1966. I had the fat little legs, the little twisty velvet pants going on there. Uh, the little, she's my, my brother, Doug, he hated that little prison outfit he had on to the left. And my sister, Terry, but look at me, man. I, I grew up, we grew up in a, not a very prosperous time. That's in Fresno, California. My dad, leave that picture up there if you will. My dad worked in, for the lumber industry, which means he, he went up in the mountains and he cut trees down with a, with a chainsaw. And so I still remember my dad's huge chainsaw, the smell of it. Uh, it was his pride and joy. It was like his Harley Davidson bike. That, that chainsaw didn't touch it. We moved 27 times by the time I was 16. We lived in a car. We lived with people. lived on people's couches. We lived in little apartments. We moved all the time. Never went to the same school between K and 8th grade. I was in a different school every September. Some people say, how'd you, how'd you get your leadership uh, to where it is today? I said, oh man, I had a tremendous advantage as a kid. God gave me a head start as a kid in leadership. They go, what, like a great school, lots of money? I said, no, man, chaos. Chaos prepared me for my adulthood because if you show up 
on a different playground every September, <clears throat> you either fight or you get some mad people skills, engagement skills, because you're always meeting new people. So my ease at being in strange settings and building rapport and connecting with people that are strangers all came out of a childhood that we moved 27 times. Well, we're living in Fresno at this time. So my dad, like I said, he had a chainsaw, but he was also responsible for giving us our haircuts. And I'm telling you, I think he used the chainsaw uh, on that haircut. But I, I tell churches all the time, if you put a pair of skinny jeans on a guy, that is a worship leader in any church in America right now. That haircut was way ahead of its time. So we met 18 years later, or actually probably 14 years later after this, when we were 18, got married, and we've been at this thing for about 38 years. And so what kind of happens when two little kids meet each other, fall in love late in life, it kind of poofs into this. Next picture, if you will. So that's our little, that's our little crew right there. That's my beautiful bride in the middle. Uh, that's my daughter over here to your right in the purple. And then I have three boys. So my son-in-law is over here. And then my sons are kind of go this way. So my oldest daughter here married this dude from Brazil. Uh, my daughter was 25, had not met the guy yet, was feeling a little like, hey, when's this going to happen? This guy shows up at my church. His name is Marcelo. And uh, I didn't like that. Uh, I could smell what was going to happen with Marcelo. Uh, uh, tall, dark, and Marcello. And so he walked in, stole my daughter's heart, and those are their two kids now. That's Olivia and Tessa. And then my, my oldest son is right here to my right in the blue shirt. That's his wife, Nicole Medina, our beautiful Latina. He's from Brazil. She's from, parents are from Guatemala. And they have two kids. That's Elias in front of Karen and Gemma. And Elias, he's crazy, man. He calls Karen Gaga. That's like for grandma, Gaga, Gaga, Gaga. How cute is that? Till he turned to me and called me Kaka. And I said, no, that ain't going to fly, dude. You're not calling Grandpa Kaka. You got it. I know enough Spanish. Um, so we got him a speech therapist. We got him up to Bompa or something like that now. So anyway, that's Elias. He's crazy, man. He swallowed three magnets last December, climbed up on the countertop of the fridge and swallowed three high-powered magnets. They went into his intestines, all found each other, and tore 13 holes in his uh, intestine and in his colon. It was crazy. 10 days in the hospital and just, uh, but God spared his life. And so from swallowing magnets, got out of the hospital, got home within one minute, climbed in his mother's bedroom and swallowed three birth control pills. I don't know what his problem is, but he's got this swallow thing going down. We're trying to figure it out. So we don't know the effects of that. We don't know yet. So anyway, Gemma, and then you have my next son is over here, Kramer. So I got Jocelyn, Tyler, and then Kramer, and he married Becky, and they're pregnant with their fourth child. That's Eli, Zachy, and little Lydia, and little, uh, this is a boy. They've already named him Jonah Scott. He'll be born here in about uh, four months. That's her. He's a big high school football coach, was a Division I uh, scholarship quarterback, All-State, first-team All-State California quarterback back in the day in 2007. Then my youngest son, Spencer, right here, married Brianna, and their two little guys are Spencer and Emerson. 
So we have Tessa, Olivia, Emerson, Spencer, Elias, Gemma, Eli, Zachy, Eli, Lydia, and Jonah's on the way. But Spencer, he was a big football player, headed to the NFL. Uh, he was a starting tight end at Cal uh, in the Pac-12. Caught a pass 2013 we're playing Ohio State. He turns to the end zone, fourth quarter. Uh, he's on the 15-yard line. A guy named Christian Bryant hit him in the knee and broke his leg back. 90 degrees, laid his calf on the ground backwards. Um, it was pretty brutal. Tore everything, hit his artery, almost got his leg amputated, but it ended his NFL aspirations. He played with, for all you football fans, Keenan Allen, Marvin Jones, C.J. Anderson. Those are all his dudes that he started with at Cal. And so now he coaches. So there, he's been a GA wide receiver coach at Cal in Hawaii. He coaches high school football. So that's my little crew right there. So anyways, that's what, that's what happens when two little kids, uh, God puts them all together and they find out uh, about life. Hey, the other day, Monday, I shared four questions. I, I wrote these recently. I shared them at the university because I want to talk to you for just a moment about a great verse um, out of the book of Philemon. And I'm going to read it to you and it'll set up my, my quick thoughts here. Philemon is a story really about the Apostle Paul. He's an older man. He's in his era of incarceration in Rome. As you study the Bible, Paul is one of the great New Testament writers. He writes most of his work from prison. And so this is one of his works while he's in Rome. He has two different um, incarcerations. One was more house arrest and the second one was more traditional in chains arrest in Rome. And he's already accomplished everything that you would want to accomplish in life. And yet he finds space in his life to meet a total stranger, a young adult that is on the run. Uh, he's a thief and he has stolen from his, his, uh, a person that he now has been assigned by the courts to work off the theft. Back in the day, you didn't necessarily go to a prison, but if you stole something from somebody, you were assigned to them as their slave. This wasn't kidnapping slavery. This was indentured slavery in the sense that you, you stole from him. Now you got to spend three years working full time for that person. Well, that's what happened in, Phile uh, in, in Onesimus's case. He stole from a man named Philemon, who's really a third party, but the book's named after Philemon. He's the guy who Onesimus stole from. Onesimus runs away from Philemon, ends up in the great bustling city of Rome to get lost. I just want to get into a metropolis so I can't be caught. In that setting, he bumps into, bumps into the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, somehow at this stage of his life, is still driven by his love for Christ and his love for people. And so he could be bothered inconvenienced and he allowed Onesimus <clears throat> into his world. He leads him to Christ. He witnesses to him. This guy's preached to thousands, but he's still witnessing to individuals. And then he disciples him and he hears this story and he says, you know, you, you got to go back and make things right. You got to go back and restore your integrity and get back to uh, Philemon. So after discipling him, he sends him back with a letter right here. This is the letter to Philemon. He also puts, this is crazy, he puts the book of Colossians, a letter to the church at Coloss, which is the book of Colossians, in his care. And him and another man named Tychukos or Tychius, depending on who your Bible teacher was, this obscure guy, him and this other guy carry the Bible. This thief is now entrusted with the letter to the church at Coloss, and on their way back to Philemon, they're going to drop off the letter, which becomes the book of Colossians. And then he goes on to Philemon, and this was the letter that was 
uh, delivered there. So two parts of the New Testament are given to this guy who was uh, a loser. And how do I, why would you call anybody a loser? Because the Bible called him a loser. I'll give you the verse. It says, I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Um, Onesimus has not been much use to you. He's useless. Paul calls him useless, but now he is very useful. And if I would say, or to, to summarize what this whole thing's about at this stage of your life, my life, is I'm going from useless to useful. That's what Jesus is wanting to do in your life. To turn you, turn to your neighbor and say, you're useless, man, you are useless. Tell your neighbor they're useless. <laughs> I've been telling you you're useless for a long time. Now the Bible's saying, you're like Onesimus. You were of no use. Now watch this. Hey, come back, come back, come back, come back, come back. You're useless, and now I'm going to make you useful. I want to share with you some things that I think are mission critical at this stage of our life on going from useless to useful, because hopefully you don't want to be useless. There's a troubling trend in colleges right now. Last year here, just locally, and this is reflected across the nation, North Central dismissed 22 freshmen at the semester break because they had uh, literally zero GPAs after three months. These are, these, none of these were special uh, admits, provisional admits, good grades, good uh, SATs, got to college and fell apart. We just talked to our friends at Augsburg, all time record, 40 plus dismissals of first semester freshmen. I talked to president after president across the country. This perfect storm has suddenly hit colleges in which students cannot cope, cope outside of a highly structured environment. And the minute they have that expanded freedom, something is collapsing. Now, I'm not ready to cry or quit, but I am ready to drill down and say, what the heck is going on? And I can't change the world, but all I can do is do this. In this room right now, forget my name. Don't forget about NCU. We'd love to have you, but let, watch this. I don't want you to forget about this idea. I, I want to go from useless to useful. See, right now, everybody's rooting for you. Everything is structured for you. All these people have given their lives to create your environment. That is about to shift like the wind the minute you get out of this school. And we're seeing a very unsettling tsunami, this, this attack of coping and this crisis of coping and becoming useful for the kingdom. I want to give you a couple of things I think that might help us today. I shared four questions Monday. I'm going to give them here to you, to the university. The reaction was so strong. I put it on social media and it's been viewed over 600,000 times in the last 48 hours shared in ways that have just been crazy reposts of these four questions. I'm going to give them to you. They're only 48 hours old. But, but nearly half a million people have already shared or seen these questions and the reaction and the 
what people are saying about these four questions um, somehow has touched a nerve. So let's go back to useless, useful, this quick conversation. There's three things I want you to know about your, your future. Number one is this. Nobody's success is going to rob your potential. Nobody's success is robbing your potential. We see a plague with young leaders. They're so afraid to help somebody else succeed or to celebrate somebody because they're afraid that they're going to get there first. As if opportunity is a scarcity, um, a commodity that is limited. When you're a Christian, I'm going to tell you something. The exact opposite is true. When the church started in Acts chapter 2, it was characterized by fire that came down upon the church and by wind. That wind works like the kind of wind that sails a boat. Can you imagine two little boats are in the harbor of, let's say, San Francisco sailboats. One boat is going nowhere. It's bobbing up and down. The other sailboat goes by at full speed. Can you imagine the little boat going nowhere, yelling at the other boat, hey, man, stop stealing my wind. The other boat would say, put your stupid sail up, dummy. There's plenty of wind in the harbor to sail more than one ship. See, what we tend to think is, while we're waiting to become meaningful in this life, that I've got to be reserved in how I celebrate another person's life. I'm not going to uh, go overboard in telling you, great job, because I'm still insecure about my lack of success. I tell you, friends, your whole life, you're going to be surrounded by people who have more or less than you. It's going to surround you. Comparison is everywhere. If, I find if I compare myself to you, I lose my way. What I'm comparing myself is this, who I am currently to the person who I can, who I can, who I can become. There's a gap between who I am currently and the potential for who I can become. That's what I'm comparing myself is to my own potential in God, not to your success. So here's what I'm saying. Nobody's success is going to rob your potential. So you don't have to live afraid of other people's success. Not everybody. I have four kids. Their birthdays, their weddings, and their kids being born all happen at different times. It doesn't all happen at the exact same moment for everybody in this room. And so nobody's success is going to rob your potential. Because if you hold back your enthusiasm for people, you hold back your enthusiasm for life. You hold back celebrating other people early on while you're still waiting for your party to arrive. You're going to live this constricted, reserved, afraid life in which you cannot give your life away for his kingdom because you're so afraid that somebody else's success is going to rob your potential. There's plenty of wind in the harbor to sail every ship. Nobody is stealing your wind. Get your sail up. Focus on your relationship with Christ like nothing else in these days. Do well in school. Take this window, this gift of education more serious than you have ever taken it before. And so uh, nobody's success is robbing your potential. Here's the second thing I want you to know is that you can't hide your heart, man. Whatever fills, spills. Can't hide your heart. Whatever fills, spills. Whatever is in there is going to come out. You might be able to do a head fake and shake off a few people and make people perceive something in a moment that's not real about you, but give it another minute and you can't pull a head fake and shake off that perception because whatever is in our hearts is going to spill. Jesus was clear about this when he talked about filling the treasury of the heart that the mouth speaks. You cannot control your environment, 
so closely that things unexpected will hit you that will cause your cup to tip. So whatever fills, spills. Here's the third thing I want you to know before I give you the four questions. Is that the longer you think about a missed opportunity, chances are you've just missed the next one too. Now watch this. I'm not saying that we blow off mistakes and failure so quickly that we don't learn from what just happened. But if you drop your head and feel like a failure and your head's dropped, I guarantee you three more things just came by. You never saw them because you got your head down. I know any, you just started driving. I got my first ticket when I was 16 and a uh, cop pulled me over and I cried. <laughs> I cried at 16 because I got a ticket. I thought I was headed to prison for 10 years. I was freaked out. I got a, a ticket. I remember uh, crunching my little Toyota Corolla, which is a car you've never heard of. Thank the Lord. Um, um, I crunched it and it got totaled. When my car got totaled, I was not totaled, but the car was totaled, which means it was beyond repair. The insurance company calls my dad and says, hey, listen, have Scott come down to Floyd's wrecking yard and uh, see his car. Because I was going to see my car, and I'll tell you why I went to see my car. So I go down there, they let me in behind the chain link fence, and there's my car. It's all crunched and undrivable, and I'm sad. But what did I do when I walked up to the car was this. I reached inside the wreckage and pulled out the valuables. I had like a calendar in there. I had some tennis shoes. I didn't tie the wreck around my leg and then drag that sucker around for the rest of my life. You've got to reach inside the wreckage, pull out the wisdom, and then leave the wreckage behind. That's what the Lord wants you to do when we fail, when we have a mistake, when we, you know, total something. You don't tie it around your life and drag that sucker around for the rest of your life. You got to reach in, pull out the wisdom from the wreckage, but you got to leave the wreckage behind. So here's the four questions to go to the useful life. They're all right here. Number one, can I remain honorable when tempted? What do you mean by that? When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, he comes up out of the water there in Matthew chapter three. And he, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit, like a dove came down. Luke's gospel says it, it remained on Jesus, this dove that can be scared quickly, but it, the gentleness of that dove symbolically, uh, not just metaphorically, but it physically came down. They saw it and it rested on Jesus. Then it says that in chapter four, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness. So he was taken from this moment of modeling water baptism for us. And the meaning of that modeling how the Holy Spirit comes into our life. And Jesus is showing us how to be a Christian, what it's going to entail. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness and it says that Satan came to tempt him, didn't send a demon. He sent himself to tempt Jesus. I don't believe that he tempted him in the first day in the wilderness. I believe it came toward the end when he was starving, craving, and at his very end of human strength. And the devil comes and offers him three things. He offers him the lust of the eyes, which is, hey, eat this, uh, or which the lust of the eyes was all the kingdoms of this earth. You bow down to me, you can have them. He offers him the lust of the flesh, which was bread 
baked by the devil. And Jesus said, no, it's, I do my bread to do the father's will. So when your flesh is craving like that, I'm telling you, and you get offered a burger in day 38 of a wilderness fast, it's hard to say no to that. Okay, but Jesus overcame the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, all the kingdoms of this world are yours if you bow down. And he overcame the boastful pride of life when the devil said, chuck yourself off this temple and let's see if the angels will catch you midair because the Bible says he will give angels. So he was tapping and hitting Jesus on the face. Like, come on, prove it, prove it, prove it, prove it, dude. And Jesus said, no, I don't, I don't fall into that trap. So Jesus stood against the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. First John chapter two says that's everything in the world. Verses 15 and 16, everything in the world is those three things. And Jesus defeated it. So he was our faithful and merciful high priest, one who's tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Therefore, we can come confidently and boldly to Jesus that he understands everything that gets thrown at us because of everything that was thrown at him. And he, he said no to it. Okay, now watch this. I read that one time and I said, Jesus, this is crazy that this happened at the beginning of your public ministry. So for the next three years, Jesus is in public ministry, culminating in his death on the cross. I said, Lord, why did this happen at the beginning of his ministry? And I felt the, the Lord drop this in my heart. I wrote this down because Jesus understood the, the whole foundation of Christian leadership and authority and success. It's this. You have to defeat Satan privately before you defeat him publicly. Three years later, Jesus would publicly die on Calvary for us. Very public display, defeating Satan on the cross. At the beginning of the three years, he defeated Satan personally and privately before he defeated him professionally and publicly. When I talk about remaining honorable when tempted, you talk about characters, who we are when no one's looking. That's where temp that's temptation comes about when no one's looking. The ease wherewith you can access totally self-destructive things on your little magic carpet called iPhones, this little sucker here that we just fly all over the world on our magic carpet. It's totally unlike anything that we grew up with in this sense. I could not access evil as you can access evil literally while you're in the room with someone else and they're unaware that you're on the magic carpet flying through lands of evil. It's unbelievable. So there has got to be something on this generation that has not been on any generation that I have read about, known about, the ability to privately understand. You know, in the Bible, there's a story of a boy that kept throwing himself in the fire. It's crazy. The dad was exasperated because the son, his child, his little boy was throwing himself in the fire, self-destructing. I think about that in this generation as a dad. I'm 57. I'm a grandpa. I got my 10th grandkid on the way. Spent most of my life in youth ministry. I thought about this generation and what it looks like for this generation to throw themselves in the fire. What's, what are these? Is Satan doing that still to this day? Making kids self-destruct before they got a shot at life. I, I would venture to say absolutely that's happening. Jesus had the power to set that kid free from throwing himself in the fire. Even though the dad uh, couldn't find the power in the prayer, Jesus came in and set that, that kid free. And so I look at this generation, I don't want you to throw yourself in the fire. I don't want to throw, I don't want to see my grandkids throwing themselves in the fire, not people th throwing themselves into the fire. Honor when I'm tempted, can I remain honorable? 
can I defeat Satan privately, not just publicly with my worship music and my preaching skill or my art or my dance or whatever the gift God has given you to impact the world? I have to remain, can I remain honorable when tempted? And can I do it privately and personally, not just publicly? Here's the second question. Can I remain composed when humiliated? It's tough to be humiliated. That is where, you know, in humble comes from this idea, but humiliation is when something completely unexpected comes your way. I've been humiliated a lot, self-humiliation. Self I was in high school, I was a pretty good hooper and I could dunk by the time I was a sophomore. I put some stick in my hand and I was doing behind the head and just like, boom. My teammates got sick of me dunking all the time in warmups. They thought, my head was big, I gotta be honest, like Jack in the Box. Like I was a big, big uh, basketball arrogance. I was dunking, 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 dunking. So one day we had an assembly and they, at Big School 2000, I said, hey, why don't we just go out during the school assembly before the game on Friday, the whole school and we'll do warm-ups, the band will play. Yeah, I just wanted to go out and dunk in front of 2,000 people. And so the team said yes, but it was a setup. And so I'm in the locker room. They said, who wants to go over? Hey, Hagan, why don't you go first, do that cool dunk? I said, I'll, I'll go, I'll go. I played right into it. Band started. I run out in front of 2,000 students, go the full length of the court, and I trip. There was an angel right there, stuck his foot out. I tripped a little bit, did not get elevation, came up short, missed the dunk, and then twisted and fell on my, my fanny in front of 2,000 people. And every one of my friends were laughing their heads off. And I turned around and the entire team was still in the locker. I ran out there by myself. Self-inflicted. Fortunately, fortunately I had enough resiliency to laugh, but I was so stinking humiliated. So my idea was, do I go off on everybody or does God, by God's grace, can I remain composed? Sometimes people point out things about you you're laughed at, your, your, your flaws become evident, you boast about something that doesn't come true, you say stuff, you get caught lying, you get caught doing stuff and you're humiliated. And a lot of people lose their composure because it's not that first choice, it's the second choice that determines your life. Once you've been kind of exposed and you're just, you get that hot flash in your face, heat, and you're embarrassed in front of people, that's exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross when he was humiliated for our, our sins. He was being falsely accused and hung up high so for the whole world to see that he was powerless, yet he remained composed. Looking back over my leadership life, and we're gonna be done here. Looking back over my leadership life, I would say one of the primary marks of people who make it from useless to useful are people that train themselves to stay composed when they get humiliated and not go off, lash out, and pour lighter fluid on the situation. It could simply be I'm not gonna say anything. I gotta be whimsical. I gotta laugh at myself. You gotta remain composed. Number three is, can I remain loving when wounded? Or do I become this wounded animal that simply lashes out at anything that's near me? I go from seemingly a composed like ah, because I'm living wounded. Remember, when you're wounded, if he had a physical wound, they have to cleanse the wound before they close the wound. If you just close the wound without cleansing the wound, the bacteria will do what the knife could not. When the good Samaritan, and we call him good, the Bible doesn't say good Samaritan, it calls him a Samaritan, we call him good. 
came upon the person that was beaten and robbed by the road. He poured two things into the wound. He poured wine and oil. Why did he pour wine? Because when you put wine into a wound, it hurts. It stings. It's painful. But the wine killed the bacteria. That's like truth. Some of us are wounded because of a combination of our own stupid decisions and the stupid decisions of those we trusted. It's kind of a combination. We're wounded. And the truth of the matter is I need to humble myself, turn to God. It's not just what they did. Okay, we're, we're like, we have one minute. Um, the wound. You got to pour the truth into the wound like wine. And then you pour oil into the wound to bring comfort. The kingdom of God, the word of God is like wine and oil pouring into our woundedness. It cleans out the bacteria so that the future things don't, don't corrupt us 10 years down the road when we're 30, 35. We've been carrying all of that crap inside of our being and, and we haven't let God cleanse it or heal it with the truth, even though it hurts. And then, it, and then comes the oil. Can I remain, can I remain positive or loving when wounded? And here's the last one. Can I remain enthusiastic when corrected? I hate getting corrected. I hate it when people tell me, hey, man, you, you missed it. I go, oh, or when people say, hey, can I talk to you? Like, no, <laughs> I don't want you to talk. Anybody have those people in your life that when they want to talk to you, they're about to point something out? Let me tell you this about correction. Most of the people who've corrected me in my life, about 80% of what they say is wrong. Maybe 90% because they're a flawed human too. Well, you did this, this. They don't know the story. But about 10% of what they say is true. I used to always think about the 90% they got wrong, and I would not listen to the 10% that was true. And so I never really grew in that season of life. Everybody, when they're corrected, man, it's, it hurts, and most of the time, it can be off base. But you gotta listen to the portion of what they're saying that is true, even if it's 1%. Accusation comes from the devil. Accusation is never true. Correction and even criticism has elements of truth. You have to train your mind now when you're young to say, okay, they got that part totally wrong. They don't know my situation. But what they're saying, maybe 5% is accurate. But when that happens, you lose your enthusiasm for life. Does it so set you back that it takes days, months for you to get back your joy or do you, or do you just pout? So here's the four big questions and we're, gonna, we're done, we're gonna pray. Matter of fact, let's all stand together across the building here. Let's, let's stand up, stand up. Can I remain honorable when tempted? Can I remain composed when humiliated? Can I remain loving when wounded? And can I remain enthusiastic when corrected? Lord, I just pray blessing upon this great school, God. Lord, turn every single student and teacher, Lord, beginning with the guy holding the mic today. Help me to live a useful life, God. I don't want to be useless, Lord. I want, to, I want you to grow me, mold me, make me, God, into something, Lord, that can bless this earth, God. Lord, use the future scientists and, and Lord, mathematicians, Lord, and the nutritionists, Lord, and the coaches, God, and the missionaries, Lord, and everybody represented in the business, entrepreneur leaders, those who build robots, God, all of it is in this room. We pray you would use them to water this earth, God. And we pray blessing upon this great school in Jesus' name. Thank you, guys. You've been a great audience. God bless you. Thank you for listening in on our Encounter podcast. You can find previous Encounter recordings and who will be coming in future weeks on our Southwest Christian High School webpage 
www.swchs.org. Click on Student Life and Encounter. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, keep your eyes fixed, not on speakers, teachers, or institutions, but on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith.